Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for being here with us. I'm your guest host this hour, Nana Jumphy, filling in by invitation for my sister and comrade, the host of Sojourner Truth, Margaret Prescott. We live in a global world. We are all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the relationship between art and politics. And now we're going to those news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. President Joe Biden says he was surprised when informed government records were found by his attorneys at his former office space in Washington. He was asked about the issue after the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee requested the U.S. intelligence conduct a damage assessment of potentially classified documents. Biden spoke from Mexico City and said his attorneys did what they should have done when they discovered the documents. They immediately call the archives, immediately call the archives. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives and we're cooperating fully. The documents were discovered at the offices of the Penn Biden Center. Biden kept an office there after he left the vice presidency in 2017 until shortly before he launched his presidential campaign in 2019. Republicans have been swift to compare the incident to Donald Trump's retention of classified documents. Media reports say about a dozen documents were found in Biden's office. That's compared to boxes of some 300 classified documents found at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. Ohio Congressman Mike Turner, the lead Republican of the House, Intelligence Committee said Biden's classified documents retention puts him in potential violation of laws protecting national security like the Espionage Act and the Presidential Records Act. Georgia Congress member Marjorie Taylor Greene called for Biden's impeachment. Democrats pointed to the difference in how Biden and Trump responded to the discovery of classified documents. California Congressman Pete Aguilar is chair of the Democratic caucus. This is Republican hypocrisy at its finest. When the former president had 320 documents found at his personal residence, they said, quote, that will not be a priority. What President Biden did was disclose this to the archives, let law enforcement know. That is exactly the way that you should handle this. Trump's documents were seized by the FBI after raiding his property as he was fighting to retain them. Former Trump Organization Chief Financial Officer Alan Weisselberg was sentenced to five months in jail for dodging taxes Tuesday in New York City. The longtime executive for Donald Trump's family company had also paid $2 million in taxes, penalties and interest. He was promised a five-month sentence in August when he agreed to plead guilty to 15 tax crimes and agreed to testify against the company where he worked since the mid-1980s. The Trump Organization was convicted last month of helping executives, including Weisselberg, Dodge taxes. It's scheduled to be sentenced Friday, facing a fine of $1.6 million. Trial is set to begin a former Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio and four other members of the far-right extremist group who are charged with seditious conspiracy over their roles in the deadly January 6th Capitol attack. They're charged with conspiring to stop the transfer of presidential power by attacking the Capitol. Opening statements begin today. 
Republicans approved a resolution to form a committee to probe China yesterday. Catherine Carley reports. With bipartisan support, the House voted to establish a select committee to assess the economic and security challenges posed by China. 65 Democrats, including Representative Hank Johnson of Georgia, opposed the measure. Why are we creating this committee? I fear that it is to create a platform to unleash anti-Asian hate and division. The committee is expected to debate the Chinese-owned video-sharing app TikTok, which committee chair Republican Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin has proposed be banned in the U.S. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. The House Ethics Committee was asked Tuesday to investigate Representative George Santos, the newly elected Republican from New York who has admitted to lying about his job experience, college education, and even family heritage. He now faces questions about his campaign finance disclosures as well. Two Democrats requested the probe, saying Santos has failed to uphold the integrity expected of members of the House of Representatives. The state of Connecticut's first round of recreational cannabis sales for adults 21 years and older kicked off Tuesday at seven existing medical marijuana establishments across the state, less than two years after Governor Ned Lamont signed legislation making Connecticut the latest state to legalize retail sales. By the end of the day, state regulators reported more than a quarter million dollars worth of sales were generated during the first seven hours. Connecticut is one of 21 states that have legalized recreational use for adults 21 years and older. 37 states across the U.S. have legalized medical marijuana programs. The death toll from a series of storms in California is now 17 and is likely to rise as it does not include a five-year-old boy who was swept away in floodwaters in San Luis Obispo County. He's still missing. The storm-ravaged state is scrambling to clean up and repair widespread damage as the lashing rain eases. Forecasters call for thunderstorms in the far north today, then another powerful weather front kicking up Friday into the weekend. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And those were the news headlines. We're so pleased to bring to you today a show that's a little interconnected. (laughs) We're going to be talking, of course, about what is happening in Brazil. We understand now that Bolsonaro has decided to take refuge in the Republic of Florida, running from the accountability that he surely would face in Brazil. And then later, after we discuss what is happening in Brazil, get a little better understanding of where this is coming from. And it's not just a cookie cutter of what's happening in the United States. And then we'll talk about the new parole program that President Biden has put forward for people who actually need refuge and asylum and hopefully get a better understanding of where we are on those two critical issues in this world at this time. So thank you so very much again for joining us as we begin our conversation around Brazil and what is happening with Brazil. Let's go to this clip. Brazil boiling over. Supporters of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro storm key buildings in the country's capital Sunday, breaching security barriers and temporarily occupying the country's Congress, Presidential Palace and Supreme Court. 
Masses of protesters flooded the country's seat of power, many dressed in the colors of Brazil's flag yellow and green, fueled by anger and distrust over Bolsonaro's defeat in a runoff election last October, where he lost by less than two percentage points to current president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Protesters threw objects and scaled the roofs of buildings while clashing with police who responded with tear gas. At least one protester was seen sitting at the desk of Brazil's Congress president. CNN Brazil reports the floor of the Congress building was flooded after the sprinkler system activated when protesters attempted to set fire to the carpet. By evening, police began dispersing the rioters from buildings and arrested hundreds of people who were detained in buses before being taken to the police station. President Lula da Silva, who was inaugurated just a week ago, described the events as barbaric and vowed to punish the people responsible. Those people that we call fascists, we call them everything that's abominable in politics. They invaded the government headquarters and they invaded the Congress like vandals, destroying everything in their path. President Lula da Silva also blamed his predecessor for the lack of security in the capital, where Bolsonaro's supporters have been camped out for over a week. Bolsonaro, who is currently in Florida, denounced what he called the depredations and invasions of public buildings in a tweet, adding that peaceful and lawful demonstrations are part of democracy. But critics say Bolsonaro may have stirred up the crowds by repeatedly saying, without evidence, that he questioned the integrity of the country's electronic voting system. The intensity of Sunday's protest shows that last year's presidential election is still unfinished business for some Brazilians and a sign of just how divided the country is. Rafael Romo, CNN, Atlanta. What we see happening in the Brazil, the world's fourth largest democracy, is a kickoff of 2023 with one of Latin America's well-recognized leftist president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, in what proved to be a landslide victory against former president and conservative climate change denier, Jair Bolsonaro. Since taking office, President Lula has started reversing the massive escalation of the destruction of the Amazon rainforest that Bolsonaro set into action. In spite of environmental damages and conservative policies, not even a full week into Lula's presidency, we see this attempted coup and insurrection led by Brazil's far-right extremists. Laura Carlson is the director of the Americas program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. Based in Mexico City, she is a regular contributor to Americas Updater, Foreign Policy in Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration and gender issues for various international news outlets. She is also a Sojourner Truth regular guest on Friday's roundtable panel. Welcome, Laura Carlson. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for joining us this morning, coming in with the guest host. I appreciate that. We could see the embers right, of what turned into a fire at the time of the election itself, when Bolsonaro supporters responded to Lula's victory by blocking the roads to the airport. Um, we said that they were in the streets, you know, denouncing the elections. And so, you know, 
the people of Brazil and the Lula government seem to have responded. What would you say? Do you did it something that they saw coming? How, how would you rate the response based upon sort of how we could see that something might be brewing? It was definitely something that everyone saw coming. The question was when. I was in Sao Paulo covering the Brazilian elections, was with Lula that, the night of his uh, victory speech. We, we were in the, the room where he came and finally gave the speech after it was known that he'd won the elections. And there was a great deal of fear of violence in those first hours after the election results came in, which was the very same night of the, of the voting. Finally, there were these mobilizations that you mentioned. My own flight was canceled to the airport that was blockaded by the mobilizations. And there were particularly encampments formed in front of military bases. The hope of the Bolsonaro faction was that they would convince the military to go against the democratic process and reinstate a military dictatorship such as Brazil suffered in the 60s. This did not happen, fortunately. The military did not go against the democratic institutions. The encampments continued to try to pressure military officers to do so. Bolsonaro, during his presidency, had created a whole kind of campaign of giving privileges to both police and military in an attempt to use public resources to buy them off precisely for this type of a scenario. He even said before the elections that if he were to lose re-election, it would only be through fraud and that Brazil would have, quote, worse problems than the United States did on January 6th and had warned that there would be a response such as what we're seeing right now. The inauguration came and went and there was an anticipation that there would be violence or protests during the inauguration. And it went relatively peacefully. And then we found that it wasn't till Sunday that there was this storming of the Capitol in a different context, but with the same forces in many ways, and with the same characteristics, almost a copycat crime as the January 6th storming of the Capitol in the United States. When we look at the context, though, the Brazilian context, as you've raised, has, you know, is a little different in the sense that with the United States, there was some concern, I think, by some people that, yo, is the military going to get involved and is the Trump somehow going to be able to get the military to put boots on the ground? But in Brazil, that fear was a real fear. Um, you know, it's not something that is I wonder if in the first time of history, the military is going to jump in and get engaged especially with a Bolsonaro government that really spent much of its time highlighting and praising uh, those dictatorship, uh, military personnel and leaders. Talk to us a little bit about that, because I think that context actually makes this a little scarier. That's right. With such a recent history of a military dictatorship, that was violently repressive and that enjoyed support from the United States government and a network of right-wing forces, imperialist forces, it's a much scarier proposition. The current democratic constitution just dates back to 1988. So democratic institutions are weaker in a sense. They've had less history to 
to take root within the country since the military dictatorship. And that always means that the armed forces are a variable that's extremely important when you're looking at whether the nation will be able to defend those democratic institutions or not. I think so far the fact that they have been able to, that they were over, able to overcome this uh, this invasion of the three powers of government, because it was, in, it was on a much larger scale actually than the January 6th storming of the Capitol in the sense that it took place in what they call the plaza of the three powers which is the Supreme Court, the legislature, and the, the palace where the executive branch in, carries out its functions. So it was very widespread. It also included acts of vandalism. And there was also significant complicity from the military police and the police of the federal district, Brasilia, where the capital is, already the uh, chief of police of the Brasilia district, Anderson Torres, has been fired. He's also in Florida right now. And the Colonel Fabio Augusto of the military police has also been dismissed on charges of being complicit and sort of standing down when these forces came up. The government knew that there were forces of the, of the far right that were gathering. Uh, there were 40 buses apparently that were rented to bring people in from other districts, especially the southern with the strongholds of the Bolsonaro supporters, but they thought they could keep it under control. So this aspect of complicity by police and some military forces was really important in the fact that they couldn't keep it under control. And now they're investigating that as well as investigating who financed which of the whole invasion, the mobilization. It appears that they're particularly looking at some of the rural bosses, that is to say the agribusiness leaders who were strong Bolsonaro supporters because of the way he stripped indigenous rights and opened up the Amazon and other areas, areas to deforestation and to agribusiness. They want to maintain those privileges. They want to be able to assure that environmentalists and indigenous people cannot protect the Amazon against their greed. And so they've been some of the major supporters of Bolsonaro. It's so interesting how DeSantis understands how to not bust people who are coming in fleeing danger when their names are Bolsonaro and the crew. Um, looking at the way in which the government responded, clearly in January 6th here in the United States, the president at that uh, President Trump was complicit himself with what was happening. And so we saw, you know, just this destruction, hours and hours that people were allowed to engage in all of the tomfoolery that they engaged in, um, this effort seemingly, you know, difficult effort to catch up with people and, and you know, folks scampering and trying to see how do we get a hold of the folks who um, engaged in this insurrection in comparison to what we say happening in Brazil, some of which you um, brought talked about in terms of you know looking at even government official levels, folks, and not just the people that were on the ground, but certainly the people that were on the ground as well. What does that do in terms of the um, the energy 
of trust, the energy of um, of credibility um, and, and the capacity to have Brazilians feel solid about this uh, government. Because again, people have been really terrified that this dream, for those of who voted for Lula, that this dream could end really violently and tragically. Right. I think that overall, the government's reaction has been firm. We saw the images of President Lula in the building surveying the damage really just hours after the invasion had been beaten back. Uh, we saw a swift response from the judicial branch. There are about 1,500 people in custody already. 527 of them have been charged and arrested. <laughs> Excuse me. And they already are deep into investigations of the business leaders who are behind financing the invasion itself. We talked about how democratic institutions are, are still weak in Brazil, and yet there's some ways in which the laws are stricter and more enforced than they were like in, in the case of January 6th in the United States, where the response has been quite slow. Uh, one of the reasons that Bolsonaro immediately went to Florida instead of staying around for the inauguration was almost certainly that he knew something like this was going to take place. Um, the investigators, the researchers who follow the far right and who follow Bolsonaro are convinced that he is behind it in some way or another. And because the laws can actually implicate him effectively with these illegal activities, uh, he immediately went to Florida and he didn't even stick around for the inauguration or the traditional um, transition of powers. So we have the situation where Bolsonaro is still in Florida, as is the chief of police, because they know that the law actually can reach them, even if their involvement was uh, somewhat indirect, that they were not actually on at the scene of the crime. There, I think that the processes, the judicial processes, Congress has also voted to legalize federal intervention in the federal district because of the failures of the local police until the end of the month in January. So they're taking pretty firm measures to say this kind of activity cannot take place with impunity within our country and that we have a president, a legally elected president, and he will enforce the law and he will govern. And so as we saw um, here in the United States, and again, this is sort of what happens in these types of insurrections, coup attempts across the world, though there was that pretty quick and firm uh, end or smackdown um, in the capital uh, of the effort to have a coup, we saw that the following day, you know, they're in Sao Paulo blocking the major road there. And it seems as if there's going to be some time period, uh, even continuing, even with the government's response, in which there's going to be this violent um, response to the election and response to the encouragement to continue to rise up. What are your thoughts about that? and how the government is going to you know, need to respond. Unfortunately, I think that time period is going to last for his entire presidency. The far right, with the support of Steve Bannon and the international right-wing forces, is not going to go away, and they're not going to go up, and they're not going to give up. 
The, it's in, in Brazil, it has a certain constitution that I think the, the way that it's actually made up is, is different in different countries. But it, it's very much rooted in evangelical churches. It's rooted in uh, the agribusiness and other types of, of business interests that have benefited from the inequality that is uh, that is a part of the Bolsonaro presidency and of the right wing right wing agenda. It's it's rooted in certain parts of the military and also in paramilitary groups throughout the country. So it has a number of different roots, but it's something that's gained a lot uh, a more cohesion with the help of Bannon and some of the international strategists. And it's also a long-term prospect. They were very upset that they didn't win the elections, although all the you know all the polls indicated that Lula would win the elections. They were unwilling to accept it. Bannon went on the airwaves immediately and said called fraud, even though it had already been uh, legitimated and authorized by international experts and by the democratic institutions within Brazil that there was absolutely no fraud whatsoever that took place in the elections. It's just the narrative that they've learned to apply and it works to mobilize people, whether they actually believe it or not, you know, to reject a government that they feel that they that that they don't want to see in power in this case a left-wing government um against many of the anti-democratic agendas of the far right in the area so the response of the government is very important not just in brazil what we're seeing happening in brazil is a lesson for countries all over the world it's a lesson in the attacks on democracy by the far right, how they work, what their strategies are. I recently attended the uh, convention of the CPAC, you know, the ultra-conservative organization, had a convention here in um, in Mexico City, and it was fascinating in this sense. In fact, Eduardo Bolsonaro, the son of Jair Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro was here at the conference, and it was fascinating in the fact that uh, they, um, you know, they really, they, they really have a lot of deep strategies in all this. So it's something to definitely keep an eye on, not just for the future of Brazil, but for the future of democracy in the world. Woo! Well, thank you. Appreciate you sharing all of that with us. How do people reach you if they want to reach you, or if they want to follow your work? Well, thanks. Our work is at americas.org, O-R-G, and uh, that's the Americas Program website. We also have a site on Just Associates, which is justassociates.org. People can see our work there as well as in other outlets. Thank you so very much for your time and insight, Laura Carlson. Thank you, Nana. We'll be back after this station break to dive into new developments in the United States asylum policy and what the new asylum parole program entails. If you are on Facebook, you can look for Sojourner Truth and give them a like. We're also on SoundCloud. Systems of justice and equality are being born. let nobody... Turn me around. Black Martin Luther King, I will do my thing. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Black Martin Luther King, I will do my thing. Call upon America. 
let me make it clear in the beginning that I see this war as an unjust, evil and futile war. The time has come for America to hear the truth. About this tragic war. In international conflicts, the truth is hard to come by. Because most nations are deceived about themselves. This is Nana Jumpy, today's guest host of Sojourner Truth Exodus by Bob Marley, Movement of the People. This is a song fitting to introduce our next guest, who is someone who has worked closely with Baji as our legal director, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, an organization that educates and engages Black migrant communities and African-Americans to organize and advocate for social, racial, and economic justice. So pleased to be joined by Baji's legal director, Sion Gurmu. Sion is a Houston-based immigration attorney She is the founder and director of the Queer Black Immigrant Project, QBIP, a Black radical lawyering initiative which provides comprehensive legal representation to LGBTQIA plus Black immigrants while creating a safe space for clients to regain control over their voices through a storytelling project. QBIP's mission is to create a systemic response to meet the legal and social needs of LGBTQIA plus Black immigrants while elevating narratives that illuminate the global injustices of state-sponsored homophobia and anti-Black racism. As the legal director of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, she heads a department that does work including biweekly virtual legal clinics, with Black migrants who are trapped in Mexico by U.S. asylum policies, direct legal representation, particularly for asylum seekers, as well as uh, assisting migrants who are looking at how they can safely stay within the United States and investigating abuses within the immigration detention system. Greetings, Sian. Greetings, Nana. How are you this morning? I am well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here with you. Before we get into discussing the expansion of the parole program that President Biden recently announced, want to give people a context for how can people who are fleeing danger, what are their ways of getting out of their country into the United States. And so I don't know if you were able to hear previously, but Bolsonaro, (laughs) former president of Brazil, he seemed to be able to escape. 
um, by simply taking his passport, buying a ticket and coming into this country. And there's a notion that people should just be able to do that. So wanting to just lay out for folks, if we can, what people's pathways are, um, and particularly talking about folks from the global south. Thank you for that question, Nana. Um, when we're talking about folks fleeing harm, there are multiple pathways available depending on the past harms that they experienced um, and the evidence that they um, can provide of that harm, um, which sort of complicates right these pathways um, and forms of relief. I'd like to focus today's conversation on three specific forms of protection, namely asylum, withholding, and protection under the Convention Against Torture. Let's begin with asylum. This is um, a form of relief that has been discussed a lot in the media over the past yeah, five years. Um, it's gotten a lot of attention. So this is a form of protection that's granted to people from other countries who are already in the U.S. or at the U.S. border who meet the international law definition of a refugee. A refugee is a person who has been forced to flee their home country due to a well-founded fear of persecution based on at least one of five grounds of protection, um, which are race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. So in order to be eligible for asylum in the U.S., you have to be able to do a number of things. You must be able to demonstrate that you are unable or unwilling to return to your home country because you fear serious harm there. You must also demonstrate that your country is unable or unwilling to protect you from that serious harm. Also, the harm you suffered must rise to the level of persecution or you must have a well-founded fear of future persecution, um, which can be a very complicated task, especially for individuals who are trying to prove all these things without an attorney. And finally, your persecutors must have targeted you because of one or more of the aforementioned characteristics about you, namely race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or um, membership in a particular social group. So immediately after obtaining asylum, if an individual is able to demonstrate all of these things, then um, the benefits are um, what everyone is after. Asylees are authorized to work in the U.S. Um, and one year later, asylees can apply for lawful permanent residence, also known as a green card. Um, and after five or more years, asylees can apply for U.S. citizenship. So it's this pathway to citizenship, this pathway to permanent protections um, that folks are really striving for. Unfortunately, there are multiple bars to access asylum, um, which we, we don't really have the time to dive into each of those today. But I will generally state that when the U.S. creates pathways to a legal status and citizenship for non-citizens, we simultaneously see that there's 
we're also furthering this dangerous divide in our nation's immigration policy between those the government deems as deserving and those it does not um, by instituting these really punitive criminal grounds of inadmissibility and deportability, which sort of fly in the face of our efforts as advocates to end um, the arrest to deportation pipeline, the criminalization of Black immigrants uh, to end mandatory detention and ensure the right to counsel for all immigrants facing deportation. So there are there are many barriers in place to sort of stop us from reaching, you know, that end goal of permanent protection under the asylum arc. I'm happy to jump into the next um, discussion of um, the next form of protection, which is withholding of removal. That would be great. But first, before you do that, so on the asylum piece, because sometimes people talk about, you know, if this person gets elected, I'm going to go to Canada. And they have this notion that, you know, as long as you're unhappy uh, with what's going on, that that's going to be enough. For you to be able to, to claim asylum. And so it, it, there's this idea that there's all these people, millions of people coming to the country and each and every one of them is going to get asylum. How realistic is that? Um, it's incredibly unrealistic for a number of reasons. One, um, the sort of standard for being able to obtain asylum is quite high. Um, so when I speak to withholding of removal, um, et cetera, you, you'll see that the bars um, and the sort of pathways to those forms of relief are complicated. Uh, asylum is a, a bit more complicated because there is a one-year bar. You must apply within the first year of arriving in the United States. In addition to that, there are other criminal bars, persecution bars, etc. Pathway to both affirmative and defensive asylum has also been further complicated by these past administrations who have put in particular barriers, especially so folks, um, some of the most vulnerable populations seeking asylum from the southern border are unable to access um, these forms of protection. And so, yes, if you could describe the withholding, because I think when people think about the protections, they just think of asylum. We probably won't get through all three, but at least if we can talk about withholding, that would be great. Sure. So withholding of uh, removal is a protection granted to people from other countries who can show that it is more likely than not that they'll be harmed if um, forced to return to their home country. So if, if we're quantifying this, which is, you know, sort of a crazy thing to do, trying to quantify fear and harm, likelihood of harm, um, but this breaks down to Essentially, there's at least a 51% chance that the government will harm them if they're forced to return to their home country. What makes withholding of removal a less desirable form of relief um, and thereby sort of um, putting uh, more pressure on folks to want to be able to access asylum um, is that one cannot obtain permanent residency or a green card through withholding of removal. So winning a case for withholding only means that the U.S. government will not send you back to your home country. 
However, if there is another country that is willing to accept you, I may try to send you there. Again, similar to asylum, there are bars to withholding of removal, which make individuals who have been convicted of certain, uh, quote, particularly serious crimes ineligible for this form of protection. So as you've indicated, it puts more pressure on folks if you actually want to not be in some kind of limbo or have them send you somewhere outside of the United States, then asylum is the way that you're going to want to go. So let's shift now and talk about this new parole program that is being touted by the administration as this you know, helpful, beneficial uh, process for people from four countries. Venezuela, who are already, um, Venezuelans are already under this program, now extended to Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua. Can you share with folks what um, this parole program is, sort of the nuts and bolts of that, so people can get a better understanding of the requirements? Sure. So DHS has announced processes through which nationals of Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela and their immediate family members may um, request to come to the United States. DHS has stated that they will provide travel authorization for up to 30,000 individuals to come to the United States each month across um, the Cuban Haitian, Nicaraguan, and Venezuelan parole processes. That means that there could be significantly less than 30,000 travel authorizations granted each month, and the number of folks granted from each country will likely be uneven as we have seen in previous programs. Um, DHS removed the prior 24,000-person um, limit on Venezuelan beneficiaries to conform to this new approach. So to participate in this parole process, starting January 6th um, of 2023, beneficiaries um, can provide one or more U.S.-based supporters who do not need to be family members, but who must have legal status in the U.S., meaning they must either be a citizen, resident, TPS holder, or hold some status, uh, immigration status in the United States. And they must also meet federal poverty guidelines um, that allow them to show proof of income that they're able to house and feed the beneficiary for at least up to two years. Um, the supporter must file what is known as a Form I-34A, um, which is an online request to be a supporter um, and a declaration of financial support um, with USCIS for each and every beneficiary they seek to support, including minor children. Uh, USCIS will vet supporters to ensure that they're able to financially support the beneficiaries and that they are agreeing to these terms. Um, there are several requirements that the beneficiaries themselves must also meet. Uh, namely, they must be a national of Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, or Venezuela, or be an immediate family member uh, of an eligible beneficiary and travel with them. They must be outside of the United States. 
Uh, as I mentioned before, they must have a U.S.-based sponsor who uh, filed the Form I-34A on their behalf, and that will be vetted and confirmed um, by DHS. They must also possess an unexpired passport that's valid for international travel and provide their own commercial travel by air to a U.S. port of entry and a final U.S. destination. Um, this means that they're also going to have to undergo and clear required screening and vetting um, to enter the United States. Uh, uh, kind of aligned with that is that they must not be a permanent resident, dual national, or hold refugee status of any other country unless DHS operates a similar parole process for that country's nationals. Um, uh, in alignment with that, they must also not have been ordered removed from the United States within the past five years or be subject to a bar based on a prior, prior removal order, um, meaning like they haven't crossed irregularly into the United States between ports of entry um, after January 9th of 2023. Um, and then finally, not having irregularly crossed the Mexican or Panamanian borders after that timeline as well. And so at the end of all of these requirements, um, DHS is going to look at whether a grant of parole is warranted based on a significant public benefit or urgent humanitarian reasons, and that a favorable exercise of discretion is otherwise merited in this case. So the process is really quite complicated. In the initial part of the process, the government will provide a response to the Form I-34A, um, and then they will contact the beneficiary and sort of figure out if they meet these additional requirements that I just went through. Unfortunately, the process also requires beneficiaries to utilize the CBP-1 mobile app um, through which they will have to submit their photo and other biographic uh, information that has to be vetted through this app. So there are certainly privacy concerns that um, that folks have expressed about uh, the requirement of utilizing the CBP-1 mobile app and what this means for individuals who are paroled into the U.S. after, you know, the two years is up, um, the ways in which they may be tracked by the government. So just for the purposes of um, people who are listening to understand, these are the requirements for people who are fleeing violence. So when you are fleeing violence, you are expected, if you are coming from any of those four countries, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, you are expected to go through this whole process before you can come into the United States to find out whether or not you're going to get asylum. Because even once you get here, it doesn't mean that just because you made it in the country that you're getting asylum, correct? Correct. I mean, these are supposed to be individuals who are showing urgent humanitarian reasons for entering the United States, yet at the same time, they're expected to have the means um, and ability to fly into the U.S. within 90 days of approval um, of uh, this parole process, and which is a very short parole process. It only lasts two years. Um, and then during that time, they can anticipate 
that it may take you know, months for work authorization to be approved. And and certainly um, there are backlogs within our asylum system if they anticipate to access that system as well once they arrive. Um, so there are definitely, you know, many, many um, sort of concerns about this, this new parole program. And so looking at two populations of people, if there are people who are subject to following this program, right, because if you are Haitian, for example, you can't decide, oh, bump that, I'm going another way. You, this is the only way that you're going to be able to claim asylum. If you get into the country and out as part of the asylum process, you then, they then determine that you are not eligible for asylum, what happens? Um, so we have both affirmative and defensive asylum proceedings in the U.S. So um, we anticipate that many of the individuals coming in through this parole process will affirmatively apply for asylum, which means the process of coming forward voluntarily to ask for asylum. Um, they're not in immigration court proceedings at this time. Um, and so they must apply for asylum within the first year, as I stated before. However, due to changes with asylum process, um, asylum office processing, we now have what's known as a last in first out policy, um, which suggests that the individuals most recently applying for affirmative uh, asylum would be heard and called in for interviews um, within 45 days uh, of applying. However, due to the significant backlog um, that we've accumulated over years from turning from a first-in, first-out policy to a last-in, first-out policy, we find that many affirmative asylum applicants get stuck in a backlog that they were not intended to be in and may be waiting, instead of 45 days, multiple years for an asylum interview. Um, and so even after being called for an interview, there is a possibility that their case could be referred to immigration court, um, where you will then be asking for asylum in front of an immigration judge. Um, and then at this point, that means that you are in removal proceedings and subject to yet another backlog in the immigration court system, which has really spiraled rapidly um, during the past decade. Pressures from external forces, including, you know, uh, shifts in immigration enforcement policy, as well as internal forces, including changes in EOIR policies and case management practices, have basically pushed the system to a breaking point. And non-citizens in immigration court are really feeling the brunt of the backlog's effect, including increased wait times, um, rocket docket hearings that are, you know, uh, not sustainable, and ultimately, you know, waiting up to up to five years for a hearing. So in the last moment, what happens if a person does, they're at the border, they come from one of these four countries, um, maybe they don't know that there's this parole process, or they don't have any, you know, some of the requirements but they are desperately fleeing. They know that the law, nor, you know, basic law is that they should be able to come to a port of entry and say, hey, I'm here. Um, I want to get asylum. What happens if they do that without going through this process if they are someone from one of those four countries? 
It is possible for individuals who are currently at the border um, to still apply for one of this parole program um, while in Mexico. Uh, the, the challenge will be finding a sponsor in the U.S. with legal status who has a job and lives above, you know, the federal poverty guidelines and can house and feed this individual for two years. Um, so they are still eligible to apply for asylum at the border, and they are still eligible to apply for this parole process at the border. However, it will become um, very, very important that they connect with um, border groups um, and shelters who can provide them with access to uh, the legal information that they need in order to access these two systems. Now, from the president's announcement, it seems that if you are sub subject to this parole program and you don't, you like you try to get in without participating, that you're going to be kicked out and banned from applying to uh, for asylum in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that in this last minute? Yes, it is imperative that an individual who is interested in applying for this parole program does not attempt to enter the U.S. between ports of entry or without inspection, or they will be disqualified from the program. Um, so that means that if you arrived in Mexico, you know, after January 6, 2023, without a visa and without inspection from immigration officials in Mexico, and they are not eligible to apply for this program from Mexico. Um, we have not, you know, seen how exactly this program is going to um, roll out. And so we anticipate that there will be, you know, alternative programs and you know, I hate to bring up Title 42, but, you know, exemptions and ways of entering the United States outside of this CHNV parole program. Thank you so very much. I know for folks, it may have been a lot, but I think it's important as we're talking about asylum and because this is an issue that um, has been talked about over the past five years, as you raised and is going to be with the House um, being with the Republicans, um, obviously going to be something that is going to continue to be talked about in this way for the foreseeable future. Really appreciate you coming on, Sian. If folks want to reach you or they want to reach Baji, connect up with your work, where do they go? Yes. If you want to learn more about Baji, please check out our website at www.baji.org. That's www.baji.org. If you have questions or want to get involved with the organization, please contact us at info at baji.org. Um, and if you have legal questions or require legal support, you can contact us at legal at baji.org. Thanks again, Sian. Really appreciate you. Thank you so very much. Thank you. We are out of time, folks. Out of time. I'd like to thank our guests, the Sojourner Truth team, including my dear sister, Margaret Prescott, our board operator for today, Gary Baca, and assistant producer, Alicia Vargas.